What was that? The story of Firefly on a basic level is the same story that so many other TV shows have had. A great idea is turned into a pilot. The studio picks it up on its potential and a season is made. The studio is disappointed with the numbers and the show is canceled. Too soon. I see that now. But if all of those other TV shows are patches of ice on the water, Firefly is an iceberg. What we see on top is only part of the story. There is a whole lot more to it once you take a deeper look. Firefly is a story about loss, the loss of what could have been. As humans, once we truly connect with something or someone on a deeper level, its loss can rock us deeply and dramatically. We mourn the loss of the talent, art, and hope in every generation and every time. People remember how they felt when John Lennon, Kurt Cobain, and Tupac Shakur died. They remember where they were when the Space Shuttle Challenger exploded during takeoff with America's first teacher on board. Losing Heath Ledger after his life-changing performance as the Joker. Knowing we'd never see another Chris Farley movie. We feel robbed of the joy their future success could still bring us. What if the Sex Pistols or Temple of the Dog had made a second album? What if Corey Feldman and Lindsay Lohan hadn't destroyed their budding acting careers? Then we root for and celebrate those who defy the odds. Could anyone but Robert Downey Jr. ever have played Iron Man? After his battle with drug addiction, the world said, well, there goes another one with great potential. But he fought his way back, and his return to Hollywood has made RDJ one of the acting icons of our time. It is proof that potential greatness is worth fighting for. But in all of those cases, we the fans are helpless bystanders, witnessing history and victims of the outcome. But there are a few rare cases when an opportunity presents itself so that fans can actually influence and change history. They're not gonna see this coming. Firefly may be a story about loss, but it is also a story about passion, tenacity, and how the fans helped accomplish something that has never happened before in the history of entertainment. This is the story of the greatest science fiction franchise that almost was. This is the story of Firefly, and you've never heard it told like this before. Make sure you stay tuned until later in the show, where we'll be showing you the coolest video from our sponsor, Raid Shadow Legends. Also, if you haven't already subscribed to our channel, please do so now and give us a thumbs up if you want more definitive histories of your favorite shows. Also, click the notification bell to never miss an episode. And make sure you stay tuned to the end to see how to get this awesome Stay Shiny graphic design from the amazing artists at MixTees.com. The, the amount that people have done for this movie, um, whose only benefit is to be a part of it, um, is extremely moving. Firefly is perhaps better known for the fight to save it than for the art it left behind. While Firefly is loved by millions of fans around the world, it left a very small mark on the TV world, airing on the Fox network for a short 14-episode season in 2002. It would be its one and only. But those four months in the winter of 2002 would end up being only a fraction of the Firefly story. While greatly misunderstood by Fox and the general TV viewing audience, fans of the show understood the creative and complicated world Joss Whedon had created and wanted more of it. 
And while Firefly wasn't the first science fiction TV show to have an organized fan base trying to save it, it would be remembered for it. But let's get back to that in a moment. First, the beginning. Firefly being created at all is a series of chance situations, whim, luck, and timing. It was created by a man who didn't want to become a screenwriter and greenlit by a woman who was coincidentally sitting in the right chair at the right time. The man who didn't want to be a screenwriter was Joss Whedon, who had already achieved cult fame with his TV shows Buffy the Vampire Slayer and its spin-off Angel. Whedon was not only the son of a Hollywood screenwriter, but he was also the grandson of one too. His grandfather wrote for classic TV shows like Donna Reed, Andy Griffith, and Dick Van Dyke. And his father, a writer for Captain Kangaroo, The Electric Company, and The Golden Girls. Joseph Hill Whedon, who would name himself Joss in college, did not want to follow in his father and grandfather's footsteps. Whedon instead chose to become an independent filmmaker. Despite not wanting to be a third-generation TV writer, broke and unable to support himself, Joss moved to Los Angeles to live with his father in 1987. This step backward would end up launching Whedon's career, and along this path was the year 2517. Humanity lived in a new solar system where there were brown coats, an alliance, and things were shiny instead of cool. Joss quickly realized he needed a way to make decent money to get out of his father's house and into his own space so he could focus on making movies. His father suggested Joss give sitcom writing a try, and with the support of his father and a few lucky breaks, Whedon would eventually find himself writing for the number one Nielsen-rated show on TV, Roseanne. As impressive as it was to be a writer on one of the country's top shows, Whedon, as a junior writer, didn't garner much attention, and though he contributed to a few important episodes on the show, he found himself at work with nothing to do. Disliking the joke, joke, joke structure of sitcoms, Joss spent the rest of his days on Roseanne working on a little movie script titled Martha the Immortal Waitress. What are you talking about? Although you would know it as Buffy the Vampire Slayer. You may be asking yourself, what does the movie Buffy the Vampire Slayer have to do with Firefly? The answer is everything. After Roseanne, Whedon's fledging agent shopped his Buffy script around Hollywood, and it was finally optioned in 1991 by Sand Dollar Productions. The young production company, founded by legendary country star Dolly Parton, was essentially unknown, but they liked the script. The story may be all about Buffy, but Firefly was born that day too. Unknown to anyone at the time, there was an important future executive working for Sand Dollar that would be responsible for Firefly being made. Gail Berman would go on to become Fox's president of entertainment, but in 1991, as a Sand Dollar executive, she was desperately trying to convince a Japanese distribution company to partner with her to bring Joss Whedon's Buffy movie to the big screen. Buffy the Vampire Slayer would hit theaters in July 1992, earning over $16 million and was considered a success. Despite its success, Joss Whedon would ultimately be unhappy with the final version of the film. The dark and comedic action horror film of empowerment he had scripted would instead end up a campy comedy. This battle over vision and tone would be a theme during Whedon's career that, as we'll see, especially impacted the fate of the Firefly TV series. Despite Whedon's disappointment in the Buffy movie, its success gave him an opportunity to hone his scriptwriting talents on movies like Speed, Toy Story, and Alien Resurrection. 
Although he was making a name for himself as a script doctor, Whedon found himself dissatisfied with seeing major changes to his script when the movie finally hit the big screen. Starting with Roseanne, this problem occurred on nearly everything he wrote. It was the mid-90s. Whedon was good at what he did, but something was missing. At the same time, Gail Berman was looking for a way to capitalize on teen-centric high school life. Shows like Beverly Hills 90210, Party of Five, and My So-Called Life were popular at the time, and Berman wanted to return to Joss's Buffy character. She thought Buffy was exactly what was needed for television. While obtaining permission to go ahead with the series, one of the requirements of the Buffy contract was that Joss Whedon had the first right of refusal if Buffy was ever redeveloped. It was exactly what Whedon had been waiting for. He would finally be able to control his creation from script to screen. The rest of the story is TV history. Joss Whedon develops Buffy and Angel and gains a cult fan following as one of Hollywood's young gun showrunners. The term Whedonverse is invented and suddenly every studio wants to work with him. It was 20th Century Fox who would come calling in early 1998. Whedon signed a future film and TV deal with Fox that Firefly would eventually be born from. Gail Berman's role in Whedon's life at this point can't be understated. She helped get his first movie made, and she also made it possible for Joss to spread his wings with both Buffy and Angel. Berman also served as executive producer for both shows. So in 2000, when Berman became the president of entertainment for Fox, with Whedon also under a future film and TV deal, the power team would be in a position to bring Joss's next vision to bigger audiences. Or would they? I can kill you with my brain. Firefly wasn't born in Hollywood. It was born 5,437 miles away in London. Whedon was on vacation with his wife Kai, and while he wasn't supposed to be thinking about work, under his deal with 20th Century Fox, he needed to deliver them a new series. Joss had written the script for Alien Resurrection and was a huge fan of outer space sci-fi, but he found TV was lacking gritty realism that wasn't an alien ripoff. Whedon was also reading a 1975 Pulitzer Prize winning historical novel called The Killer Angels by Michael Shara. It tells the story of the 1863 Battle of Gettysburg during the American Civil War from the perspective of the soldiers. Whedon became fascinated with the small, everyday moments of the soldiers' lives. Today, everything we need is instantly available, but Whedon was drawn in by the idea that the things we take for granted today could be the difference between life and death for those soldiers. Joss then imagined characters like those soldiers traversing the Western landscape, creating history on the frontier with every step they took. He didn't want the people who made history to tell his story. He wanted his story to be about the people being stepped on while history was made. The inspiration for Firefly also came from the 1939 John Ford movie Stagecoach, which follows nine characters that band together as they cross the open frontier between the Arizona and New Mexico territories. Ford's Stagecoach included a driver, a doctor, a reverend, and even a prostitute. The skeleton of Firefly was coming together right down to the threat of savage Apaches, which in space would become the bloodthirsty Reavers who live on the outskirts of civilized space. In Firefly, Whedon saw an opportunity to tell this story again in a future where humanity must leave the Earth and brave the frontier again. 
There are no laser guns, transporters, aliens, or clean spaceships. His show would be about how politics affect people on a personal level. Whedon didn't care about the Federation or the Jedi Council. He wanted to show how the small people survive when the powerful people make decisions. But even great ideas need to get past Fox executives. And as we mentioned before, Whedon had a friend at the top in Gail Berman. She wanted Joss on Fox. She recalls going to the Buffy offices to talk to him about it. Shortly after, he gave her a fully fleshed out idea for Firefly. She was surprised it was a space show. She didn't think that's where he was headed, but she also thought, wherever Joss is going is where I want to go. While there were disagreements about things like having a married couple on the ship, Berman trusted Joss. So in December 2001, she greenlit Firefly with an order for 13 episodes. A month later, Fox gave Whedon's production company, Mutant Enemy, $10 million to develop and shoot the pilot. At $8.7 million, Joss would deliver it under budget. But that didn't mean executives were happy about it. But we'll get back to that in a moment. First, Firefly would need a cast. The actors who helped create the Firefly we love were not initially considered the important element of the show, at least in the eyes of the show's creator. Whedon warned his cast early on that there was a reason why he named the show Firefly after the spaceship and not after a main character. According to Adam Baldwin, who played Jane on the series, Joss told them he'd had that experience before, didn't want to go there again. You were all expendable. And if I choose, you can go at any time. Of course, he was referring to either Buffy the Vampire Slayer or its spin-off Angel, both named after main characters. And with no public feud ever coming out between Angel's David Boreanaz and Whedon, the likely source of Whedon's distress was actress Sarah Michelle Gellar, who played the televised version of Buffy. According to sources familiar with the Buffy production, Early in the show's run, Geller had a severed relationship with Whedon to the extent that she didn't want his name spoken around her. After years of frustration for the talented writer who powerlessly watched directors and even actors make changes to his scripts, it was no surprise that Joss took a my way or the highway approach to the productions he was in charge of. Geller's 2021 comment that she doesn't want to be forever associated with the name Joss Whedon may shine a light on their relationship, which would explain Whedon's threat to the young Firefly cast. Joss was happy that his new show would have an ensemble cast, and he would include several character types that his fans would be familiar with. The loner with a distinct sense of justice, the dependable sidekick, the book-smart person of reason always being pushed to new boundaries, and of course, the young female superhero, a Joss Whedon specialty. And Joss chose his actors for Firefly well. Whedon called Firefly the best cast he ever worked with during Firefly's 10th anniversary panel at Comic-Con San Diego. So we had the best cast I'll ever work with. If you have a spaceship, you are also going to need someone in charge. Captain Malcolm Reynolds would become the Western Frontier Han Solo that Whedon was looking for. Nathan Fillion had just finished the canceled ABC sitcom Two Guys, a Girl, and a Pizza Place and had been offered a talent deal by 20th Century Fox. The studio wanted a show for him, and he was brought in to meet Joss for the role of Mal. But that wasn't the first time Fillion had been up for a Whedon role. 
Back in 1996, Fillion was passed over for the part of Angel on Buffy, although he never met Joss during the audition process. So he didn't recognize him when he was ushered into a room to chat with Whedon about the role of Mao. He noticed a little guy in the corner with a ripped sweater and scraggly hair. Nice guy, he thought. When is Joss Whedon going to get here? During the conversation, he realized the little guy was Whedon. They talked for about 45 minutes about work, other shows, and of course, Firefly. Whedon told Fillion that he'd love for him to audition and thought he'd do well in the part. But the audition did not go smoothly. Fillion was asked to do multiple readings until he finally became confused. He told the casting people he didn't know what was going on. They said he was reading the lines the same way each time. After the breakdown in communication, Fillion received the direction he needed and everything clicked into place. During the audition process, Joss didn't have a finished pilot script. The show was only a rough 18-page treatment, so Fillion had a lot of questions and Whedon was more than happy to discuss them. Fillion later said that no one has ever been so complete in their vision as Joss. From music to lighting and special effects, Fillion explained that Joss knew exactly what he wanted to do. Good. Firefly's second officer would need to be loyal to her captain, but married to the pilot, and find a way to make that work. Gina Torres, who'd played the title role in Cleopatra 2525, wasn't interested in doing another science fiction show, but she was compelled by the Firefly source material. She remembers thinking that her character would be in a very interesting dynamic. After talking with Joss, she would learn that Zoe was career military and she loved her husband. Torres was given the chance to fill out her character from there and felt blessed that Joss trusted her enough to let her do that. Before he was Dodgeball's beloved Steve the Pirate and one of Disney's main go-tos for voiceover characters, Alan Tudyk was Hoban Wash Washburn. Serenity's pilot and husband to Zoe on Firefly. The only notable thing Tudyk had done on television before Firefly was to be on an episode of Frasier in 2000. He was more recognizable on the big screen from the 2001 movie Hello, which he played in with Heath Ledger. In a recent interview with Rolling Stone, Tudyk recalled getting the pages for Firefly and thinking, what is this? I can't audition to be on a show for seven years with just two pages of information about it. But after calling a friend for advice and revealing it was a Joss Whedon project, the friend said, do it. You have to do it. Tudyk sent in his audition tape of him playing with dinosaurs and promptly forgot about it. When they called him back a couple months later, he said, Firefly, you must be mistaken. What's that? Of course, he went on to get the role and today it is the performance he is best known for. Believe it or not, Firefly wasn't the first time Jules State played the engineer on a spaceship. In fact, the 13-year-old version of State played Catalina, a rainbow-haired ship's engineer from Titan, on the Nickelodeon kids' show Space Cases. The Canadian series aired from 1996 to 1997 and included guest stars like Mark Hamill and George Takai. So when the opportunity to play Kaylee Fry, Serenity's engineer on Firefly, she must have jumped at the chance, right? Actually, no. According to an interview she did with RadioFree.com in 2005, she was more interested in auditioning for the role of River Tam. This is because the role of Kaylee was described as chubby. The 23-year-old actress was thin with a fast metabolism, and she wasn't sure the role of Kaylee would be right for her. 
State remembers bringing it up to her agent, who then reached out to Whedon's people, who said, no, Jewel is a Kaylee type for sure. Trusting the process, State sent in her video audition and hoped for the best. Shortly afterward, she was asked to come to Los Angeles to meet Whedon. Before her screen test at Fox, State was asked to audition in front of Joss at Mutant Enemy offices. State recalls being petrified. Buffy had just celebrated its 100th episode and there were congratulation posters up on the walls. She was in awe that she was there at all. Then Joss came out of the audition room with a big warm smile and she was put at ease. She felt like he was in her corner from the beginning. She recalls that later during her screen test in a room full of Fox executives, she would find his warm smiling face in the crowd and it would make her feel better. After she won the role, they immediately brought up Joss's requirement. Would she be willing to put on 15 or 20 pounds for the part? Jewel was able to put on 15 pounds before going on set three weeks later. She said it was hard and she felt sluggish. It was hard for her to keep the weight on during the season and she lost it immediately after. Later, when they did the Serenity movie, Joss told her she didn't need to gain the weight again because he knew how tough it had been for her the first time. Six? Oh, with this, I'm gonna live. Adam Baldwin, 20 years older than Jewel State and nine years older than Nathan Fillion, was remarkably youthful looking in his Firefly role as mercenary Jane Cobb. The mistrustful character's main purpose was to serve as Captain Mal's muscle, a bodyguard of sorts. But this wasn't the first time Baldwin played someone's heavy. In fact, his very first paid acting job in front of the camera was for the 1980 movie My Bodyguard. Baldwin played a giant among children, and that character, like Jane, is actually a bit softer on the inside than what you initially see. Baldwin was the most recognizable face on the cast when the show started. Prior to getting the role on Firefly, he had been in 34 big screen movies and 32 television roles. Needless to say, Adam had been busy. From Full Metal Jacket to Wyatt Earp and five episodes of The X-Files, Baldwin was a working class actor. And Firefly was initially just another way to keep working. Baldwin found out about the role and auditioned. He later found out that Joss had seen some of his earlier work and thought he would be a strong fit for the character of Jane. Baldwin connected with the role. He was familiar with the character because of the westerns he'd grown up watching as a kid. He liked to play the scruffy characters. So with a little gruffness in his voice that Joss had to tone down from time to time, Baldwin would turn Jane into a timeless character. During the season, Baldwin admits that he thought Joss was going to kill Jane. He said he lived in fear of it. During the eighth episode, Ariel, Jane goes against Captain Mal and tries to get rid of their fugitives. Mal hits Jane over the head and sticks him in the airlock, about to send him to his death in the vacuum of space. Baldwin thought Whedon might actually kill off his character. Instead, we learn that Jane is deeper than he seems, and we see real remorse in his character. As a result, Mal lets him live and Whedon gives us high-class drama that would only add to making the series that much harder to lose. Shiny. Let's be bad guys. Baldwin may have been worried about his character being killed off, but for Marina Baccarin, she wasn't even initially cast in the role as companion Inara. That honor was bestowed on Rebecca Gayhart, who was initially hired and then fired after only one day of filming. Gay Hart, a teen model who rose to national attention as the Noxzema girl in the early 90s, 
was let go to a lack of chemistry between her and the rest of the cast. As chance would have it, the same day Joss decided to make the change, Bakarin was having lunch with her boyfriend and Gayhart's manager. While Marina was getting the call to audition, Gayhart's manager was getting the call about the firing. During Bakarin's audition process, she immediately felt a great rapport with Whedon. When she tested in front of studio executives the next morning, Whedon was there supporting her in the same way he had with Jewel State. When it was over, she was expecting to have to go back and do a few other scenes differently. But Joss came out and said, congratulations, you have the job. I'll be in my bunk. Like Marina, Sean Marr, who played Simon Tam, was in contention for the role. Neil Patrick Harris, previously Doogie Howser MD, and now most known for his character Barney on the hit sitcom How I Met Your Mother, was in competition for the role with Marr. Sean wasn't much of a science fiction fan and agreed to talk about the project because he wanted to meet with Joss. As Whedon described the world of Firefly, Marr said he almost fell out of his chair. He liked Simon Tam's character, but it was Whedon's personality and vision that sealed the deal for him. Marr had been looking for a permanent home while on a holding deal with Fox. After short stints on a few series to include seven episodes of Party of Five, Marr would become most well-known for his role on Firefly. Simon Tam's sister, River, was the female superhero Joss Whedon couldn't resist writing into his stories. And the choice for this critical role would end up going to Summer Glau, whose acting credits up until this point included one episode on Whedon's other TV show, Angel. When she first moved to Los Angeles, she was a ballet dancer, but she was auditioning to become an actor. As luck would have it, Whedon wanted a dancer for the Angel role. Despite exaggerating a bit on her resume about her past acting experience, Whedon saw something he liked and gave her the part. So when the role for River came around, her small part on Angel and experience with Whedon would help her get the part. She considers her work on Firefly to be her first real acting job. Miranda. River may have been Summer's first acting gig, but the actor who would play Shepard Daryl Book had been acting for a long time. Ron Glass started acting in 1973 on an episode of All in the Family, but he was first well-known for his recurring role on Barney Miller from 1975 to 1982. Glass's only other trip into science fiction TV had been an episode of The Twilight Zone in the 80s and an episode of Star Trek Voyager only a couple years earlier. During his audition for Book, Glass recalls being intrigued by the character, but what really made him want the role was Joss's reaction to hearing Ron perform the words. Glass described Whedon as having an emotional reaction to his audition, and he realized how dedicated he was to the work, and that, more than anything else, made him want to be a part of Firefly. You're going to burn in a very special level of hell, a level they reserve for child molesters and people who talk at the theater. Once the cast was set, it was time to start production. While most shows start with a script, this one would start with a song, and that song would play a more important role in shaping the show than anyone would expect. Usually, the first step in creating a television series is writing a pilot, but Whedon doesn't necessarily do things by the book, considering he'd already cast a whole show without a script. But that's not all he did before writing the script. Whedon also wrote the theme song. In fact, he wrote the theme song right after Fox greenlit the show. 
and that decision would turn out to be an important anchor for Whedon while creating the show. The Folk Song, which is a somber yet simultaneously uplifting message about independence, was written after the Battle of Serenity. Whedon realized everything he was going to put Captain Mal through was in that song. And it was the song that would help keep Whedon focused on his message while writing the pilot. You Can't Take the Sky From Me would become a focal point in the show, and Mal's character would be built around this idea. During the original pilot, Serenity, this idea would come through clearly in a few lines of dialogue. Simon was complaining to Mal that half, half the of the people, people on the ship have been shot or wounded, including yourself. Mal said, We're still flying. Simon would reply, That's not much. And Mal would finish it by saying, It's enough. And that was exactly what Whedon wanted the world to feel when they saw his new show. Just keep going. This idea was so important, Keep Flying would eventually become a fan rallying cry. But more on that in a moment. Firefly was exactly the show Joss Whedon wanted it to be from the beginning. He felt he was capturing history in the future, and it was important to him that the verse be created by remnants of Earth that had been left behind. Whedon felt that with the US and China as the current Earth superpowers, in the verse, those two cultures would come together to create the culture of the future. This idea was inspired by his wife's experience living and teaching English in China, as well as his own interest in the country. He decided that in Firefly, the English language would be peppered with long bouts of swearing in Chinese. That idea, in theory, ended up becoming a little more difficult in practice. Joss explained that in Chinese, you can say something that's paragraphs long in like two syllables. So he kept having to write longer and longer curses so people could hear the Mandarin Chinese. This made it more difficult for the actors to memorize and repeat. Years later, the question would be asked, if the verse is half Chinese, how come we never see any Chinese people? During the 10th anniversary panel at San Diego Comic-Con 2012, Whedon addressed the topic by essentially saying it wasn't a mission statement who he was casting for a particular role, but it was a mission statement that cultures inevitably blend. He liked the utopian idea that the future was a blending of cultures. While Whedon was busy writing and directing the pilot episode of Firefly, he started to realize he was going to be spread very thin trying to oversee three shows simultaneously. Buffy the Vampire Slayer was in its sixth season, and Angel was in its third. He already had people running his day-to-day -day operations on those two shows, and knew he'd need someone to do the same on Firefly. But he needed someone he could really trust to help develop the show and keep everything going when he couldn't be on set or in the writer's room. Tim Minear was already working for Whedon on Angel, and he was the first person trusted to break a story without Whedon on any of his shows. Joss had already been screening the pilot for Tim and was asking for his notes. Minear recalls not believing he'd ever have the opportunity to work on Firefly. So when Whedon asked him if he wanted to come fly his spaceship, Tim eagerly said yes. Minear, who had been an assistant director on the film Platoon, didn't see the war he was stepping into with Firefly. Whedon had already fought the battle with Fox over having a married couple and a high-end prostitute before the project was greenlit in December 2001. But that was only the beginning of the trouble the Firefly production team was about to have with their new network. In January 2002, things started moving. During the shooting of the pilot, the studio did not like what Whedon was showing them. They felt the show was too dark. They wanted more action. They wanted it to be lighter and they wanted Captain Mal to be funnier. 
Fox wanted to appeal to a younger demographic, but Joss wanted to make the show he wanted to make. In the end, Whedon tried to meet the studio halfway. Joss started doing reshoots. He included an opening war scene to create more action. He included dialogue that displayed Captain Mal's sense of humor as well. But despite doing reshoots, the network was still not happy with the pilot. In May, when the network started putting together its 2002-2003 schedule for its upfront presentation for advertisers, Firefly was expected to be held until 2003 as a mid-season replacement. Fox was losing its sci-fi mainstay, The X-Files, and they had the James Cameron-produced Dark Angel, which was expected to be renewed for its third season. Then on May 10th, Whedon was told by the network that they weren't sure they were going to pick up the show and they wanted a new pilot script by Monday. Whedon and Mynir had two days to come up with a completely new idea that studio executives would like. Joss and Tim spent the weekend at Mutant Enemy offices trying to beat the deadline. Whedon wrote half of the script and Mynir wrote the other. By Monday morning, they had written The Train Job. The network liked it, and on May 16th, during the network's upfront for advertisers, Firefly was added to the fall roster and Dark Angel had been canceled. It was good news, but also bad news, because Firefly had also been scheduled into the Friday night death slot. Firefly was starting with an uphill battle, and only four months until the first episode needed to air. Up to this point, Whedon had been very frustrated trying to work with the network on his pilot. Gail Berman had faith in him, but Joss had failed to deliver the Buffy-type action series set in space, and they weren't sure what to do with the show. The narrative has been that Fox wanted Firefly to fail, and while perhaps some people in Fox didn't care for the show, businesses themselves don't like to lose money, and Berman especially didn't want to see Whedon's show fail since she's the one who pushed for it. The network will say that not enough people watch the show. Fans will say that Fox didn't try hard enough. And while there were many things that Fox did wrong leading up to the launch of the show, the most devastating thing it did was put it in the Friday night death slot. Although, the decision to put Firefly in the death slot was not as nefarious as fans believe. According to Adam Baldwin, Fox only had two one-hour slots open for the 2002 fall season, Wednesday nights at 9pm and Friday nights at 8pm, so there were not a lot of choices for the network. The new show, Fastlane, starring Tiffany Amber Theason of Beverly Hills 90210 fame and up-and-coming stars Peter Fascinelli and Bill Bellamy, was a show smack dab in the middle of Fox's wheelhouse. Executives were excited for their new dramedy, inspired by Bad Boys and Miami Vice. The Friday night slot had also just been occupied by the show Firefly was replacing, so it's not a surprise about who ended up on Friday night and who ended up on Wednesday night. Jewel State remembered driving home from work one night along Sunset Boulevard, and Fastlane was having a huge premiere party with a red carpet and press and everything. Her thought was, cool, I better start packing. Years later, she would tell this story and say they may have received the attention back then, but they don't have Fastlane conventions today, do they? And while Fastlane was enjoying premiere parties, Alan Tudyk remembers Fox making the actors on Firefly pay for their lunches. He'd never had that experience on anything else he'd ever done. It was becoming obvious that Firefly was going to be an underdog show. The Friday Night Death Slot is not a fiction of some fan's biased mind. Shows like Firefly go to die there because young adults aren't usually home to watch TV on Friday nights. 
and Firefly was intended to be a young adult audience show. Fox had already canceled nine shows in the previous 10 years that aired during the Friday night primetime slots. The studio should have known that any show airing on Friday nights would not be able to keep up with shows on other nights, especially for the young audience. In the 16 years after Firefly was canceled, 31 other shows have found their death during Fox's Friday night lineup. That's 40 shows in 26 years. The Firefly team didn't know it yet, but they never had a chance. Firefly was the worst ranked Fox TV show in the fall of 2002, with an average 4.7 million viewers per episode. Had Firefly been on WB, it would have been the network's fourth highest rated show. And had it been on UPN, it would have been their number two show, right behind WWE SmackDown and ahead of Star Trek Enterprise. But Fox demanded higher ratings as one of the big four networks, and the last rated show of the season was going to have a hard time being brought back for another. It's also important to remember that reality TV was king at that time, and Fox's top shows were American Idol and the short-lived Joe Millionaire. But outside of those shows, Fox was in a race for last with ABC. Their next biggest show was The Simpsons, all the way down at number 40. So to be fair, viewership for Fox overall wasn't great that year. It wasn't just Firefly. And for those Firefly cast members who were jealous of Fastlane, they might find it ironically pleasing to know that when they were canceled, Fastlane was moved into their Friday night time slot and canceled themselves only a few months later. But the Friday night death slot was not on the minds of Joss Whedon, his cast, and his crew. Whedon had hand-picked every person himself. Firefly was exactly the show Joss wanted it to be from the start. He cared deeply about his new universe, and he was creating it with care and passion. The actors and crew that were making the show with him also created a deep connection quickly with the show, and several of them would say Firefly was the experience they measured all of their future shows against. Whedon's choices for each role resulted in genuine chemistry between the characters that leapt off the screen and created a connection with fans. And according to the cast and crew and Whedon, Nathan Fillion helped create that chemistry and was the anchor of the show. Not only was he the captain of Serenity and leader of their band of misfits, he was also the captain of the glue that held everyone together. Whedon had originally wanted someone older than Fillion to play Mao, but once he spent time with the young actor and took him through the audition process, he knew he was the one. Marina Bakarin would say it was Fillion who set the tone as the lead of the show. Sean Marr described Nathan as an amazing presence who knew everyone's name. Adam Baldwin told a story about how Fillion showed up at his 40th birthday party right after they met. He didn't even know me, he recalled. Nathan doesn't get enough credit for helping us pull through the series. Baldwin said that Nathan had an air about him that inspired us to be loving toward our characters and the characters around us and to be giving so we all have our moments. This is why we fell so in love with Firefly and why we were crushed that it was going to be gone before its time. Jules State remembers Fillion inviting everyone to his house on the weekends to swim in the pool and play Pictionary. And during the 10th anniversary panel at Comic-Con San Diego, Whedon told Fillion and the crowd there was never a moment when he didn't think Nathan was the captain. He went on to say that Nathan was there to make sure everyone was having the best time and doing the best work. 
That's usually the job of the executive producer or the director. Stars of shows have a responsibility that most actors aren't up to, like Nathan Fillion was. And while everyone would say Fillion set the tone, Nathan would say it was a team effort. And ultimately, he would be right. Summer Glau credits her performance as River with the role being at the right time in her career. Glau, being a new actor, naturally felt a little like an outsider. And even though she felt like she was in a protective environment with her cast, she did make a lot of mistakes. River was going through this as well, and she felt like what she was going through in real life was also coming through the character and making the performance that much better. Jewel State credits Whedon's writing as being one of the things that brought everyone together and allowed fans to fall in love. The character of Kaylee is a warm-hearted charmer who seemed genuine. Each character brought a genuineness and love to their characters, and that is ultimately what allowed fans to fall in love with the show. The fact that anyone could follow the show closely enough to fall in love is a minor miracle in itself. There were so many problems with the show at the network level that if taken to a court of law, Fox would still be paying reparations to the Firefly team for their mishandling of the series. After the Friday night death slot and the Firefly team feeling like unsupported network outsiders, there was the marketing for the show. The question will always be, why would Fox direct the marketing team to make promo videos without first talking to the people making the series? Was it bad leadership, bad communication, or a lack of care? Perhaps Chris Buchanan, who was in charge of Mutant Enemy at the time and was shown the promo in advance, is at fault for not demanding it was changed. Regardless, Firefly promos talked about a cosmic hooker and a whacked out space cowboy set to the music of Smash Mouth's Walking on the Sun. It was a disaster. Alan Tudyk remembers the announcer mispronouncing their names and it becoming a running joke on the set. The story goes that Fox sent the promo reel to Buchanan and when the marketing guy asked him what they thought, he told the guy it was great, but it wasn't our show. The marketing guy would tell Chris that his job was to get people to watch the show and then they'll figure out what it is and they'll stay. The promos were so off base that anyone other than a Joss Whedon fan who might be interested in what the show was actually about would have been turned off by the promo, and it only gets worse. Forget the fact that Fox required Whedon to create a new pilot that didn't set up the characters correctly, but the network would then go on to air other episodes so ridiculously out of order that the plot and the character arcs didn't always make sense from episode to episode. And on top of that, Fox was constantly preempting the show for Major League Baseball and even an Adam Sandler movie. The air dates look like this. Episode 2, 3, 6, preempted. Episode 7, 8, 4, 5, 9, preempted, preempted. Episode 10, 14, and 1. Episodes 11, 12, and 13 didn't even air during the original run and would be released in mid-2003 when the Sci-Fi Channel brought the series to the United Kingdom. So it shouldn't be a surprise to learn that the cast and crew were under extreme pressure each week when they kept repeatedly showing up at the bottom of the ratings. Jewel State would explain that they felt like incredible underdogs and they were just waiting each week for the cancellation announcement to come while still putting forward their best acting and hoping that things would work out somehow. But of course it didn't. On Thursday, December 12, 2002, 
While they were filming the episode The Message, Tim Minear remembers Whedon showing up while they were shooting on the bridge and pulled him aside. The show had been canceled. Joss and Tim decided to tell everyone right then instead of waiting until after the day of filming. Adam Baldwin recalls never seeing Joss so mad. Joss told them that he didn't have good news. They pulled the plug and this is the last episode. Baldwin's daughter was on set that day with him, and he remembers an assistant director knocking on his door and telling him to get to the set because they'd just been canceled. His daughter was doing her homework. Baldwin looked at her and thought, I've got money saved, but now what? Filming stopped for the day, and they all went to Fillion's house to get drunk and forget their broken hearts for the night. The crew was back on set the next day and still had to shoot for another week to complete the shooting despite knowing they were canceled. Minear reminisced that you would never know from the actors' performances that they had just been canceled. Tim said that they had to shoot a scene where they were all laughing. No one was in the mood to laugh, but you'd have never known it when watching the episode. On the last day of shooting, they were finishing up the episodes The Message and Heart of Gold. As each cast member finished filming their final scene, the assistant director would say, that's a Firefly rap. The rest of the cast and crew would applaud and the actor gave a speech. Then it was on to the next scene. Everyone stayed that day waiting for the others to finish. They were a family and that's how they would end it. Minear remembers going home at the end of the day. The show was finished and they were tearing down the spaceship. When he got home, he turned on the TV and they were finally airing the Serenity pilot. Joss Whedon was so upset, he wouldn't accept the cancellation. He'd promised his actors that if this was good, it would go. He kept telling the cast that it wasn't over and that he would take it someplace else. He pulled his agent, lawyer, and Minear together and tried to find a new home for Firefly. To Fox's credit, they gave him the go-ahead to try. Whedon had talked about trying to keep the set and film on his own. It was going nowhere at that moment. No other network wanted the show, but Whedon wasn't one to give up. In fact, Joss had been working on saving the show as soon as he realized they might really be canceled, and he used the best weapon he had in his arsenal, the fans. In November, while the show was airing, Fox gave hope to the series by ordering two more scripts into production. But four days later, the network preempted the show for an Adam Sandler movie. It was at that moment Whedon and the Firefly team started reaching out to fans for help. Several cast members started posting messages directly to fans on the official Firefly website, while Joss Whedon's wife Kai reached out to the webmaster at JossWhedon.net and asked for help getting the word out about the show. From that, a fan-led campaign called Firefly Immediate Assistance coordinated an army of fans who called themselves Browncoats. Named for the show's rebel resistance, fans began loudly asking for Firefly to stay on the air. Fans started out by sending postcards to news outlets asking journalists to cover Firefly in their columns. They organized viewing parties throughout the United States and Mutant Enemy provided publicity photos and a copy of Nathan Fillion's recipe for seven layer bean dip. Then fans reached into their pockets to save Firefly. On December 9th, in Variety magazine, a full-page ad was placed by fans that featured the headline, You Keep Flying, We'll Keep Watching. The ad brought Joss Whedon to tears. But despite the passion from the fans and the Firefly crew, they couldn't convince Fox to continue running the series. At 4.7 million views per episode, Firefly was Joss Whedon's highest rated show, even higher than Buffy or Angel. 
but the views were too low for Fox's standards, which expected the show to bring in 12 million plus viewers per week. Gail Berman would eventually say that if she could do it all over again, she likely wouldn't take Firefly off the air. But back in 2002, that decision had already been made. Despite the show being canceled, the fans had not given up hope. They began writing UPN, asking them to pick up the show. Firefly's viewing audience would have been big numbers for the struggling network. But while UPN said the show appealed to them, they didn't feel it was a good fit for their current programming needs. Star Trek Enterprise was fulfilling their science fiction fan needs at that time. Firefly seemed done for the moment, but it still was far from over. Fox did a lot of things wrong with Firefly, but they did something very good that would end up giving it a chance. At that time, very few television series had been brought to DVD, but they took a chance on Firefly and released the DVD set on December 2, 2003, nearly a year after the show was canceled. Fans started buying the DVD set in droves. The fans were proving that Firefly had very real commercial value. The word was being passed among fans that everyone should buy a DVD set. Fans also raised over $14,000 to purchase Firefly DVD sets and have them placed aboard 250 U.S. Navy ships so sailors could watch the show during deployments. Joss felt a surge of support from the fans, and it gave him an opening. Since timing and luck are as big a part of Hollywood success as anything else, it just so happened that Mary Parent, the co-head of Universal Pictures, had wanted to do something with Whedon for some time. He had previously turned her down, explaining he was too busy running multiple shows. But after the cancellation of two shows, he suddenly had more time on his hands. Mary asked him again if there is something he wanted to do. And this time he told her he wanted to do a Firefly movie. Luckily, Mary loved the Firefly story and felt that it ended too soon. She told Joss to write a script. Mary knew she could make the movie if it appealed to both fans as well as people who had never seen the show, and it was done for the right budget. In early September 2004, something happened that had never been done in Hollywood before. A single-season canceled TV show got a movie deal. Mary loved the script, loved the DVD sales, and all of the Firefly fan sites. Universal was able to acquire the rights to a Firefly movie from Fox, and Whedon would eventually agree to a very low budget of less than $40 million and a shooting schedule of 50 days. He would both write and direct the movie. Universal had high hopes for a multi-film deal. All Firefly needed to do was be moderately successful and show that the property would be profitable. With this in mind, the studio asked the actors to sign multi-film contracts. This is the real reason Alan Tudyk and Ron Glass were killed off in the movie. They couldn't commit to doing sequels, and Joss felt he needed to remove them in case there were future films. Joss had a tough job ahead of him. He had to make a movie for a fan base who had just fought to bring their show back and an entirely new potential fan base that had never seen the original TV show. Whedon feared writing a script that alienated both audiences. He was also concerned there wasn't enough time to have 10 characters, each with a complex backstory. Typically, he would introduce characters to the audience at the same time he was introducing the characters to each other. 
but these characters already knew each other. He also found it difficult to put Mal and Rivers' characters into the film as they were, and Rivers' character ends up changing pretty significantly in the film. She would go from a meek, mind-reading, disturbed young lady in Firefly to an all-out, badass ninja superhero in Serenity, the type of female character Whedon loves. Joss's original 190-page draft was a kitchen sink version in which he touched on all the major play points from the series. This is why you see River being rescued by her brother, Mal's gruff My Way or the Highway persona, and of course Kaylee and Simon's potential love interest. In the end, Joss was required to size down the script to make it fit the budget. There was no way Universal was going to make a three-hour-plus movie based on a canceled TV series. This made it difficult to give all of the characters meaningful storylines. While that decision wouldn't impact fans who already knew the show, it would be a confusing element for people new to Firefly. Even with the trimmed-down script, Universal estimated that filming would require 80 days with a budget of over $100 million. To cut costs, they wanted Whedon to shoot overseas. But Joss didn't want to move his family, so he insisted that filming could still be local, and he cut the budget in half. The budget was for $40 million, but Joss shot it for 39 which was considered incredibly low for a science fiction film with special effects. The end result is that Whedon simultaneously retold the Firefly TV show while also writing it as a sequel to its only season. River, Simon, and Mal got fully fleshed backstories while Inara and Book's characters pick up after the series leaves off. Kaylee, Zoe, Wash, and Jane are not developed, but stay true to the show. Fans of Firefly would get it. But would new fans have a hard time understanding the purpose of these seemingly minor characters? British actor Chiwetel Ejiofor is excellent in his bad guy role as the determined operative and his character is more fleshed out and enjoys more screen time than anyone other than Mal or River. Having a great bad guy is good for a movie, but more time for the bad guy means less time for other characters from the series. Whedon may have been in an impossible position trying to appease both audiences while being forced to keep the movie under two hours. As a result, Whedon would have to lean the movie in one direction or the other to avoid leaving out both groups. But let's get back to that in a moment. First, it was time to rejoice the return of Firefly. Less than two years after the series had launched on Fox, the crew was making a movie. Baldwin recalls Joss's face after seeing the ship rebuilt from scratch at the gigantic stage at Universal. Whedon was so happy, it reminded him of a kid in a candy store. The movie set was also filled with the joy of being back together and getting to live in the Firefly universe once again. Jewel State remembers thinking that they didn't have to worry about losing their jobs or not being able to pay their mortgages. They had this beautiful piece of unfinished business to attend to, and for six glorious months, they would get to play it out, and just like they wanted to, in total bliss. But it wasn't exactly the same as it had been before. Whedon gave new things for the actors to explore. State's now famous Twix My Nethers line was initially played as a whisper. Joss asked her why she was whispering. Kaylee isn't inhibited. She'd shout that as loud as she could to get her point across no matter who was listening. State remembers thinking, oh yeah, of course she would. During the scene where one of the Reapers harpoons Jane's leg as he clings to the crew's small hovercraft, Mal must shoot the rope to set him free. 
Nathan Fillion remembers thinking he was going to do it slowly, taking aim. But Whedon had him shoot quicker, saying Malcolm Reynolds shoots better the angrier he gets. Even Whedon was able to make adjustments. He's usually iron tight when it comes to his character's dialogue. But one of the most memorable lines from the film came when Joss told Fillion to say something Mal would say while the Reavers were bearing down on them. So Fillion said, Faster, faster. Faster would be better. Today, it's a classic Whedon verse line. After honing his producing skills for over eight years across three TV series, he had become a teacher of his craft. Now directing a feature film, Joss went from seasoned teacher to floundering student. He gives Mary Parent at Universal a lot of credit as his mentor. She taught him more about making movies than anyone had before. Joss would say that making Serenity was very humbling, difficult, and sometimes very frustrating, but ultimately the best thing in the world. This was the building blocks that helped him learn before he would go on to make memorable Avengers movies. On April 26, 2005, Universal issued the first trailer for Serenity. The odds of Serenity turning into a multi-movie franchise with a $40 million budget was very high. Universal would need to see a decent return on their investment to greenlight the second movie. Must Love Dogs would make $43 million domestically in the U.S. in 2005. Surely a Firefly movie could do better. Some would argue that what happened next would be the first of three daggers to the heart of Serenity and the future of Firefly. Up until this point, fan interest in the upcoming movie is huge. Success for the film seems almost guaranteed to spring into multiple movies and perhaps Firefly could be the first to go from canceled TV show to the movies and then back to TV. But just like Fox messed up the marketing for Firefly, the marketing by the studio for Serenity may have tripped up the movie before it ever started. Universal would choose a grassroots method to advertise the film. The film was on a tight budget. Universal was sticking their necks out for Firefly, but they were only willing to stick it out so far. A great marketing campaign can often double the cost of production. This grassroots method would not only save money, but help spread the word about the upcoming opening of the film in September. While their hearts may have been in the right place, Universal may not have thought the entire process through. Shortly after the trailer's release, Universal announced an unprecedented plan to promote the film. On May 5th, the studio would start screening the film for fans in 10 cities in hopes of creating an early buzz for non-Firefly fans. The showing sold out very quickly, but instead of luring non-Firefly fans, it ended up being mostly super fans who were following the news on Serenity and would have done almost anything to see the movie early. The May 5th pre-screenings were so successful on May 26, they did it again, increasing it to venues in 20 cities. Word spread quickly and Firefly fans, excited about the opportunity to see the movie early, started calling local theaters and buying tickets. All 20 cities were sold out before the official announcement was even released to the public. This prompted Universal to create a third round of pre-screenings on June 23rd in 35 cities, as well as a final screening at Comic-Con International. Thousands of rabid Firefly fans banded together to try to get into these early viewings. According to people who attended them, some cities had multiple theaters offering the movie as many as three times on pre-screening days. 
That means that as many as 100,000 Firefly fans may have seen Serenity three to five months before the movie ever came out. Did Universal really think they could show the movie to that many people and expect to hold excitement for the film's blockbuster release in September? They did. In fact, they counted on it. During the preview screenings, Whedon inserted a message before the film. It said, All the work the fans have done have helped make this movie. It is, in an unprecedented sense, your movie. Which means if it sucks, it's your fault. If this movie matters to you, let somebody know. Let everybody know. Make yourselves heard. If you don't like the movie, this is a time for quiet, for months of silent contemplation. Was the energy and anticipation of 100,000 Firefly fans wasted before the movie's launch? According to Joss Whedon's biography, there were some who questioned whether buzz for such a niche film could be sustained for five months. It would be difficult for fans who had already seen the movie to bring the same energy to the release in September. Mary Parent would say that going to the first pre-screening was an unbelievable experience. It would be a lot to ask even the biggest superfans to be as excited watching the movie a second time. It's impossible to say what would have happened had they waited. But it's certainly possible that buzz would have helped Serenity more on opening weekend. To be fair to Universal, they went all in on the guerrilla marketing. Between August 16th and September 5th, they released five short films on the internet known as R. Tam Sessions that show counseling sessions with the character River Tam while she was being held in the learning facility at the Academy. Joss Whedon actually plays the counselor in these shorts. Also, on October 5th, after the movie was released, and likely because of the lackluster box office returns, Universal made the first nine minutes of Serenity available online. This was a desperate last effort to show people how great the movie was and try to kickstart a wave of new viewers to boost the box office sales. Serenity's second dagger was the name itself. There was some confusion over why the movie was not being named Firefly after the series. Firefly would have been more recognizable and create a larger box office buzz. On June 3, 2004, Whedon explained the film would be released as Serenity in order to differentiate between the movie and the TV series. But later he would say that Fox wouldn't allow Universal to use the name for the movie, and so he used Serenity because it was the name of the ship. What's strange is there is no explanation as to why Fox wouldn't allow Universal to use the name Firefly on the movie. While it very well may be true, there is no official statement by Fox or Universal about this. Fox had canceled the TV show and given the movie rights to Universal. Why would they not allow them to use the name Firefly? They wouldn't be making their own Firefly movies, so what gives? For now, mum's the word. And while we may never know the whole story, nor can we know if it would have made a difference in the success of Serenity, it definitely wouldn't have hurt it. The third dagger for Serenity was what we had alluded to before. Whedon needed to choose a direction for the film to go. Would he lean more toward the fandom or more toward potential new audiences? Let's hear it from a superfan who left a five-star review. 
Thousands of reviews on Rotten Tomatoes mostly praise the movie, but this is what an overwhelming number of fans said in their reviews. Serenity is a fantastic capstone on the TV series it's based upon. In some ways, it actually ends up being even better than Firefly. With that said, Serenity would be nowhere close to as good as it is if you hadn't watched Firefly before it. This and hundreds of reviews like it say similar things. Everyone overwhelmingly agrees that you needed to see the series to really understand the movie. So what happened? Even as good as Joss Whedon is, he would be hard-pressed to create the movie it needed to be in under two hours. A choice needed to be made. It would seem that, in the end, Joss Whedon chose his fans. He made sure that if there wasn't another movie, this would pretty much end the story. The fans were the reason the movie was being made at all. He likely hoped his entertaining story would also bring in new fans, but he could be certain fans who knew the show would enjoy the movie. Most of the regular characters served little purpose in the movie, but fans who watched Firefly would get it. The other issue is that Whedon ended the movie on a down note, which isn't typical for movies you expect to see sequels for. He killed off two of his main characters, gave them a funeral, and then ended the movie with Mal and River alone on the bridge. They had been main characters, but it didn't feel like the crew of the Firefly was going on more adventures. Serenity would gross an underwhelming $25 million domestically. International sales would allow the movie to break even, but it didn't earn the money Universal had hoped for. Rumors of a sequel started in December 2005 when IGN Film Force reported that Universal would create a made-for-TV movie on the Sci-Fi Channel contingent on strong DVD sales of Serenity. But in January 2006, Whedon said he doubted there would be a sequel, and in October 2006, he flat-out stated on Whedonest.com that he wasn't working on a sequel. Rumors of a sequel would persist, pushing DVD sales in 2007. Joss would go on to say that he was still thinking about a sequel, but he wasn't sure if anyone else was thinking about it. But if you think Firefly and Serenity died with their movie, you'd be greatly mistaken. In July 2005, indie publisher Dark Horse Comics released the first of 18 comic books as a canonical continuation of the Firefly television series and Serenity film. The initial three-issue miniseries, Serenity, those Left Behind was written by Joss Whedon and Brett Matthews. Those Left Behind is set after the events of the Firefly series and serves as a bridge to the Serenity film. It was originally planned to be an anime project, but it fell through leading to the story being released in comic book form. Dark Horse published the comic books until 2017, and in 2018, Boom Studios assumed the Firefly license and began publishing a series of Firefly comics with Whedon acting as a consultant. The comic books were a treasure for fans who were upset that the shows and movie had ended. Comic books were a great way to continue telling the story, but perhaps the best way for fans to continue experiencing the Firefly universe is through conventions. According to Nathan Fillion, the cast of Firefly has been attending conventions since 2003, and the fans have been right there with them. Comic conventions have popped up in almost every major U.S. city since Firefly left the air in 2002, and that included conventions overseas as well. 
and the cast and crew of Firefly have been actively attending for the past 18 years. Whether it's panels with several members or a one-on-one -on -one question and answer session or autograph signings, the people who created the Firefly universe are to this day actively engaging their fans. After a decade, the fan support was still colossal. During the 10th anniversary convention at San Diego Comic-Con in 2012, more than 7,000 fans crowded into a room that typically holds 4,000 people. The panel that included a tearful moment with Nathan Fillion was memorable as the cast and crew reminisced about the show and movie. Browncoats waited in line all night for a chance to be a part of the historic panel. Conventions aren't just a great chance for fans to meet the people who made the show, but it's also a chance to meet other fans of the show. It's an opportunity for them to come together and share theories, ideas, and stories of the science fiction series that was taken from them too soon. And as long as people are still carrying the flame of Firefly with them to conventions around the world, Firefly will keep flying. For having such a short run, Firefly and Serenity have made a lasting impact on our world. In June 2006, fans organized the first worldwide charity screenings of Serenity in 47 cities. The event was titled, Can't Stop the Serenity, an homage to the movie's tagline, Can't Stop the Signal. The event raised over $65,000 for Josh Whedon's favorite charity, Equality Now. To date, over $1,300,000 have been raised by Can't Stop Serenity for the charity. In June 2007, NASA astronaut Steven Swanson, a self-titled browncoat, took the Firefly and Serenity DVDs with him on Space Shuttle Atlantis. The DVDs were added to the media collection on the International Space Station as entertainment for the crews. As Firefly nears two decades in age, the past is now in the history books, but the future has yet to be written. With Disney the new owner of Firefly, it will be interesting to see if the mouse takes a stab at a franchise whose fans still love it as much today as they did nearly 20 years ago. It would be great for the verse to get a second life with Disney. As long as things stay shiny, brown coats come first, and Firefly keeps flying into the future. Do you think the magic of Firefly can be recaptured again? Let's talk about it in the comments below. Also, check out this shiny graphic design at MixTees.com, as well as their other Firefly-inspired designs. Get 20% off your purchase by using coupon code THEPOPCAST. The link is in the description below. Don't want the show to end? Become a PopCast member by hitting the Join button to get exclusive content including behind-the-scenes live streams, Discord access, wallpapers, and so much more. Click Join and let's hang out. Also, after subscribing here, Make sure you head over and subscribe to the Popcast Unleashed for updates, clips, and other special videos. Until next time.